In this episode, we're going to cover the current state of TikTok, changes in paid social, and freelance marketing. I spoke with Rachel Vandernick about this and a lot more because let's face it, paid social and paid media right now is an inflection point. Rachel is an advertising expert who helps companies strategize and execute on paid channels. And today she's going to enlighten us about paid video marketing and a bunch of other things as well. So let's dive right into the episode. Paid media is kind of what I really want to talk through today and pick your brain about. And maybe we can just level set and start with what you're kind of seeing as the current state of paid media, specifically in the e-com space. What are companies you're working with seeing right now with paid media? I think there's a couple of things. Number one, challenges with retail attribution, because a lot of larger businesses that sell at a retail arm, particularly like a CVS or a Target or Walmart, Sephora, any of those kind of like shop retail situations, figuring out how to optimize paid media when you don't have things like pixel data or purchase data and how do you use signals to do that kind of optimization in that vacuum. And then move away from really more brand-generated content and continued reliance on whether it's UGC or influencer content and monetizing stuff that's already in the wild and really creating a more authentic experience through through those two lenses. Definite shifts if you've been in the industry a while where, you know, everything for a period of time was brand-created content and creative team studio developed assets. And now it's like, get ready with me is in front of somebody's mirror. And it's just a totally different type of creative coming into the marketplace. For sure. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the challenges facing paid media right now. I know a big concern with all the privacy things a little bit while ago, a little while ago, that's probably still top of mind for you. Are there any other challenges that kind of everybody's just going through right now that where you're just wave, waiting for the storm to pass a little bit? I think no matter what industry you're in, attribution is always a question. Every client, every brand wants to know every dollar that goes out, what am I getting back for it? And with Certainly more constraints, whether that's from GDPR or whether or not they're going to install passback data, pixel-related trafficking things, or whether that's even just a matter of like your retailers don't necessarily share back that attribution. I think that's an ongoing challenge for everybody, and I don't know that there's a solution to that, particularly when your data goes into a black box like a platform and you don't necessarily get to see how that sausage is made. And I think, too, like concerns about what platforms are are going to be here for the long haul. There's still continued conversations around whether or not TikTok is going to be around. Like Montana literally last week just banned it in the entire state. And that I think is going to be a challenge through the summer. So how do retailers that are really invested in platforms like TikTok that may have relationships in foreign countries, how do brands prepare and brace for that impact? And is there going to be more? And how do you split your budget knowing that maybe one channel isn't going to be as stable as you previously thought? For those concerns that you just outlined, as a freelancer, as a consultant to companies, what are you telling them to try to help them get to the other end of this still doing well, not necessarily dying because of these things, but actually coming out the other end or surviving? What, how are you consulting them? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that brands can do. And then I'm talking to my clients about almost daily in this space, particularly related to TikTok, although you can extrapolate that to any platform that's going through heavy periods of fluctuation. I think one is a plan A, which is right now. How do we operate in the space today? What are the known constraints today? And two is like this long road ahead. How do we future proof? How are we allocating budgets? What things do we have as backup? So for example, if you're working with an influencer and you're securing whitelisting rates to put their content on your channel or in ads across TikTok, 
it's probably worth at this stage securing backup rights for alternative channels and repost rights on other places. So that if you do need to pivot very quickly, for example, if you're an e-com retailer in Montana, you lost or you will be losing. It goes into effect in January if it's not overturned. You'd be losing your rights to your content overnight and making sure that you have something in place for warehousing and storage of that content if this is something that that platform would be going away for your business and trying to future-proof in that way, making sure your data is accessible from more than one place and in more than one capacity. But I think, too, it's thinking about, like, where would consumers be going if this platform goes away? How do you think about user behavior and user journey? And where would your target demographic and your ideal customer be migrating if something gets shut down on their end? And I think the best way to do that is by talking to them. Like, the best time to make future plans is by talking to your customers now before you have to move. I think for a lot of my brands that I work with, that's the conversation that we're having is how do we start talking to our customers about how do they feel about this? Where are they going? What are they doing? Where are they spending time? Where are they investing money? Where are they purchasing? Where are they considering brands? Where are they finding new things? Every platform will tell you it's through their brand and through their channels, but your customers will tell you where they actually care to spend time and money. So I think at minimum, those conversations are an immediate need for brands. And in those conversations, specifically around TikTok, is there like a common theme that's coming up of if TikTok shuts down, we're going to do X? Yeah, the most common thing that I'm hearing from clients and other consultants are basically if TikTok is not viable anymore, the immediate plan for a lot of brands is to revert back to Instagram and see how else things shake out. Because the reality of it becoming a court case is that it's going to circle the drain for a while. And brands are going to be living in this kind of like platform purgatory of where do we spend time? How do we talk to our customers in this space? And even if the bans go through, customers don't leave right away. And there are going to be people that it affects disproportionately, brands that it perfect, brands that it impacts disproportionately. So I think for a lot of those brands, it's making some changes in how they think about where their budget's being allocated. If you're spending a lot of money and time on TikTok, you probably want to consider beefing up other channels in preparation just in case. In a best case scenario, you have the option to go wherever you want and wherever your customers go. But you don't want your hand to be forced and you'd have to go back to a channel that you've been neglecting for two years where you have no presence, no content, no relationships and be starting all over again. Yeah, th this is actually one area where I don't know a ton. So maybe for myself, for the audience, I'd love just a quick breakdown of especially the ads side of these platforms. I think we talked a lot about organic TikTok, but ads on TikTok, what's actually, what are companies actually doing across TikTok, but then also Reels and YouTube Shorts? Because I think we treat those channels as very similar, but there are differences, especially on the advertising side. Maybe if you wouldn't mind just kind of doing a quick comparison, that'd be really helpful. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that if you want to compare, like maybe the closest one to one, I think would be a reel and a TikTok ad. The feel and the vibe of Instagram for a really long time was something that was super polished, really perfected, the airbrushed kind of like Y2K influencer of the, up to the 2015s. Right. And TikTok gets its start, becomes really popular because the content that excels there is like a little unhinged and a little less polished, which just from a what content you can even monetize standpoint makes them totally different. What's been really funny over the last year is you see a lot of the content on TikTok starting to show up as reels just like two weeks later. So like friends of mine that are on TikTok will send me a reel that it was actually a TikTok and it's like, hey, I saw this like two weeks ago. But from a monetization standpoint, the intent that you can target by on TikTok is just so much more specific. Obviously, there's interest targeting on both platforms, but Reels is more similar to like a reach and frequency campaign 
on TikTok, whereas a lot of the ads that I see being really successful and that have been successful for brands are Spark ads, which are effectively ads that look like they're coming from the creator themselves, even though the brand is paying for them. You'll see in your feed, it says like paid partnership, but it's actually the brand that's running that ad. So it looks like the influencer is there, but it's actually a brand. Obviously, there's whitelisting on Instagram as well, but the Spark ads that I see performing really well tend to be more conversion and traffic focused, so lower funnel objectives, whereas the reels that tend to do really well are something more mid to high funnel, like a reach or an awareness play. So I think that even though they both pixel targeting and they have audience creations and all of this, I do think that the intelligence that is powering the intent behind TikTok ads is just better. It's kind of intangible because they'll never tell you what's in that sauce, but I've seen returns better on TikTok than I have Instagram and all of that's anecdotal. Like, But the actual form and functions of the ads are relatively the same. Like you can target by audiences, you can target by demographics, by interest, by language, by location. So the actual setup of the ads is not that different. It's really, to me, it comes down to like platform capabilities and where they're finding their users in that pool of people that you're trying to target. And then the third part of the equation would be YouTube shorts, which I'm guessing is like completely different in terms of what you're able to do. Yeah, Those are like feed-based, whereas YouTube, you run an ad, you kind of have to like have your own account and run an ad, but it's not really a video. It's on your channel, at least. It's just kind of a video that's floating as an ad. Is it kind of the same for shorts? So I don't spend a ton of time in shorts. Most of my work today is really in like the TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Google search space. YouTube is something that a lot of my clients, once video became a really strong move from Instagram and then later TikTok, a lot of them kind of ba abandoned their YouTube efforts, which there's reasons to do and reasons to not. A lot of, and I think an important caveat here is a lot of the brands that I work with are like the beauty and makeup and like skincare space, which there was a huge like MUA community on YouTube for a long time, but they moved over to Instagram by and large. And there are some OG creators that are still there, but for the majority of them, they've been really harnessing the power of other platforms for years and they haven't really spent a lot of time on YouTube. So the brands that I work with then don't spend a lot of time with creators that are in those spaces. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Going back to TikTok, I think one of the, probably the biggest belief from companies vis-a-vis -vis TikTok is that it's too top of funnel which you've kind of outlined some reasons why that may not actually be the case. But if a new client came on board to you and it was, we want to do TikTok, but we don't want it to be so top of funnel, what are the things that you would tell them to not just change their mind about it, but like really show them this can be more than traffic. It, it can actually lead further down the funnel. Yeah. So I think some of this is just in this setup because like other platforms, when you're doing your targeting and you're setting up your ad and your structure, the first thing that you do at the campaign level in a TikTok ad is set up the signal that basically you want to send back to TikTok from these ads. So, you know, if it's a traffic ad, if it's an awareness ad, if it's a conversion focused ad, if it's an app install ad, you're going to find a different pool of users on the platform. The platform is going to try to find a user that is more likely to click, more likely to view a landing page, view product, whatever. There's also more product capability. So I think it depends too on what the brand is doing. But for example, if you are a brand that requires a little bit of product familiarity before someone buys, right? You have a longer buying cycle. There's this like nurture period where someone's maybe familiar with the brand, but isn't ready to purchase is longer. If you're not buying, let's say a $5 lipstick, but you're buying like a $50 lipstick, maybe something like an instant page experience in TikTok where you can explore the product, where you can learn more about it, where you can do some more in-platform merchandising is a really interesting play versus a traditional traffic ad where you go to a PDP, you click, you buy the product online, whatever. 
there are some really interesting features that like if you direct to like a Sephora landing page, for example, and you have virtual try-ons there that lets you get a little bit more integrated into the product. And I think we're going to see some of that coming into the TikTok space, provided that the ads stay active and the platform stays up. I think much like how Pinterest and their ad platform did the like view in your home and like the 3D virtual tours where you could put the couch that you were pinning for inspo, instead of putting it on the board, you could look at it right away in your house and could do that 3D experience. Brands like Wayfair do this. It's really incredible. I think we're going to see a lot of that coming into the platform, but I think some of this also starts with the type of content that you're putting out. I think if you're looking for people to get more interested in the product that you're trying to sell, real people selling those products, whether that's UGC or influencer, is a far more compelling sell than a brand-created asset on a platform that values authenticity, rawness, and realness. One thing you just brought up is like UGC and influencer. Really quick, how do you differentiate those? Well, influencer is somebody that you're not just paying for their content, you're paying for their following. So there's a lot of people, you see this a lot on Twitter, actually. They're UGC creators. So these are people that they're just professional content creators, but they're not influencers in their own right. They are really good at making the videos. They're really good at doing the product photography or the styling um, and creating that authentic user voice for a product, but they're not necessarily real users of the product nor are they people that have necessarily a point of view like an influencer would have, that you're following for that persona, for that kind of commodified persona content. So to me, they're very different, but brands tend to use them, meaning like use the two types of creators almost interchangeably. You'll see brands using both all the time, but to me, it comes down to their audience. And they're that makes sense. That audience. Yeah. To your point, I've, I kind of had thoughts on that too, but it does seem interchangeable to a lot of people. So I think that was a really interesting clarification. If we zoom out to like paid social as a whole, not just TikTok, if you were to look back and kind of think of a couple of key bullet points over the past few years of what's really changed, what's different now versus five years ago or so, what would those bullet points be? Yeah, I think it's really hard to tell the story of paid social and attribution without talking about the iOS updates. They've been talked at to death. So I don't know that there's anything I can add to that conversation that hasn't already been talked about. But I think when we look at where brands are investing a lot of time and attention, right? You've, you've been doing this over a decade. You remember the times where like you could run Facebook ads so cheap, so efficiently, and like everything was running at 10x, 20x row as it was ridiculous, right? Like it was the wild west. And over the period of the last couple of years, there have been a lot of parameters put on brands trying to advertise in this space around advertising restrictions. So whether that is the type of things that you can run the type of claims that you can make, the type of things that you can say, the types of organizations that can run ads. So a couple of these, for example, Facebook has in implemented categories post-2016 of these issues of national importance. So things like credit, housing, employment, politics, children, all of those things, healthcare to a certain extent, now carry certain waivers, disclaimers, and badges on ads, whereas previously none of that existed. On TikTok, you can't do things like before and afters and make claims that you don't have submitted clinical data for. So there's a lot of things in this ad space to bring consumer transparency and to try to come up to speed with some of these changes in the platforms themselves and how users are thinking about it, how brands are using it. But I think the biggest changes are really just what people are using each individual platform for. Like I remember the days where you would put the same ad and the same creative and the same content targeted exactly the same way across Instagram and then just populate that over to Facebook right when that was the hot thing. Um, and now it's like everything is so channel specific. Everything is so attuned to point of view. And that's true of organic. And that's especially true of ads because organic, you're putting it out on your feed and maybe whoever shares it. But 
from a paid perspective, you are paying to put that content in front of somebody that it better be true to their point of view and it better speak to them in a way that, that platform is known for, or at least that they find compelling because you just can't spray and pray it anymore. And that was certainly like the ad of old where it's the same creative one everywhere. It's And I think too, that there is this part where you know, the older versions of these platforms were so about how you targeted. Everything had to be this audience, that lookalike, this percentage, that retargeting, this website cookie. And now we're like, we're moving towards a cookie-less future. We're moving towards like a black box data future where just some of these things aren't possible. So more than ever, rather than spending so much time and effort on the targeting piece of it, though still importantly, you have to get right. Like, I think creative-led ads are really like where ads have been and where the future of advertising is going kind of in perpetuity at this point. Yeah, let's keep on that future theme. So the flip side of that would be five years from now, what do you think the bullet points look like? What you mentioned more of that creativity side, maybe the data is a little tougher. Any other bullet points you think in the next few years that we should expect to see or even hot takes that you might have? Yeah, I think, I mean, number one, I think we're not done with the platforms that we've got. Facebook has been alleged to be dying since the day that it was put on this planet and it's still not dead. So I think these future looks where it's like, oh, this platform is going away. I don't think that's true. I don't think in the next five years we're saying goodbye to Instagram. I don't think we're saying goodbye to Facebook. TikTok is a whole different ballgame at this point, but all things being equal, I don't think that's gone either. So I think that not only are they not gone, but I think there's new players that are going to come in. I don't think we're done with emerging platforms. I don't think we're done with seeing new opportunity come to fruition. One thing I do think we're going to see an increased amount of is FTC involvement in these platforms. There has been this like real cavalier attitude with a lot of brands around things like trademark infringements and not disclosing sponsorships, not disclosing relationships. And all of those things legally in this country, in the United States, are ads. Any sponsored content, even if you didn't pay for rights to run the content, even if it was a gifted product, all of that stuff is an ad. And the FTC has made it very clear that it intends to crack down on all of that. And and it has for the last couple of years. But I think we're going to see a, like an enormous escalation of this because not only are brands doing this illegally, but they've become kind of flagrantly flaunting it. And I think that we're we're seeing kind of the expiration of that. Is that something that comes up in your consulting where you have to like lay down the hammer or have you avoided that? all the time. And it comes from, it's not just the types of content. It's like, oh, we want to put this type of music in our ad, but it's copyrighted music. And you're like, okay, are you going to call someone at Sony? Because they're going to be upset about it, right? You can't just use copyrighted material in advertising without consequences. And people's likeness to their own face, their own name, their own persona, like all of that is legally protected. So even individual consumers that you are using their content and reposting it and monetizing it. If you haven't secured written legal permission, like you are breaking the law. And this is something that it comes from a good place, right? Brands want to talk about their cool product. They want to talk about how much people love it. And that's amazing. But the flip side of that is there is a legal and right way to do this. And as a consultant, as a freelancer, to be a good partner to brands, it is your job to help them understand the legal ramifications of those choices. You might not be able to change their mind. They may still do those things. But it is your job to be responsible enough to advocate for the legal position in them. Shifting gears just a little bit, when you're working with your clients, maybe you could give us a kind of, I don't know how possible this is, but a split of your time, kind of what you focus on between like the creative side or copy or just pure setup or just strategy. Like, What does it kind of look like the mix of all the things that you typically do for clients? 
I would say across the board, across all sizes of clients that I work with, probably 75% of what I do is strategy and counsel to them and helping them figure out how these platforms work, how they can use them, creating the framework of what that looks like. And this other 25% is executing it in some capacity. So that may be actually trafficking the ads and getting them set up and doing the reporting, doing the monitoring. Some of that may be writing their briefs to their influencer partners or to their creative partners so that they're getting back the content that actually works from a monetization standpoint. Or if I'm working with them, I do some work in SEO. It's actually, you know, doing the audit myself, not just talking to them about SEO and its importance, but physically getting in there and like looking at their Google Analytics and looking at their website and looking at Search Console and talking them through how it works and understanding their user's journey. I would say like that's probably the macro breakdown within the strategy. Of course, there's like helping them do things like petition ad rejections or understanding why you might choose this platform over another or doing some forecasting work for them to help them understand what they might get back from a budget that they're putting into it or you know, helping them put together their board decks. For example, if their investors are really interested in their social platforms, like technically that might be execution, but I view that more as a strategic council role. The average client that you have, what would you say? Maybe you've already answered this with the the legal things that you've talked about, but for the average client, what would you say is the biggest mistake that they're making and you recognize it the second that you start working together? So definitely the legal constraints. If you are a brand that is willing to break the law and you're kind of willing to do that right out the gate with me, the relationship goes downhill pretty quickly. Like respect for the law is something that like in this platform where everything is trackable. I don't want to be working with brands that are willing to do that, nor do I want my brands to get in trouble. And those fines are massive. They carry six-figure penalties. Like I'm not interested in taking what was going to be their beautiful, luxurious ad budget and instead we're paying an FTC fine, right? That's not a good use of resources. That's not being a good steward of that. But I think the other thing is not being willing to play a long game. A lot of brands want to run an ad campaign, do SEO, and they want a result in two months and three months. And Certainly with ads, it's possible, but if you're not willing to make mistakes and learn and you want to create the same super safe ad that you've been running all the time, like that's also not probably a good relationship because if you're hiring someone like me to come in and create this new path forward for your your advertising campaign or your digital strategy, like you have to be willing to take some risk and failure is an inherent part of that. There has to be a willingness to say, you know what, this campaign didn't work and we can learn from it. We can restructure and we're going to do it again differently next week or next month. If the only thing that we can do together is get the same results that you've been getting over and over, then that's not a good path forward either, right? Like you want the ads and any strategy to be profitable and scalable, but that also requires that you are willing to take an L and learn something occasionally. Last question for you, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. For you personally, so you've, I'm guessing you've done in-house work, you're doing freelance work. I'd love to know why you think people like you, top marketers, top thinkers in the field of whatever, email marketing or paid search or whatever, why do you think freelance is becoming more attractive for these this top talents? And you can use yourself as an example here. Yeah, I read this quote once that like, I had, so I've been freelancing in the background for a decade and I've been full-time for about five years. I've been agency side, in-house, startup, whatever. But this quote, I was not yet full-time freelance. I was working at a startup and it was like, I talked to somebody about why they wouldn't want to just go work full-time at one of the organizations that they've been gigging for. And the guy turned to me and he goes like, are you kidding me? Like I get to set my own hours, set my own prices, work at anywhere in the world, determine my own schedule. And you want me to give all of that up for an office? Like, and that to me is the epitome of why freelance, right? Like this is not the right fit for everybody. But for me personally, 
I am somebody that I like to get my hands in a lot of things. I get bored extremely easily. And I like to dictate my own schedule, particularly because my spouse works kind of unusual hours and unusual days of the week. And we need that flexibility in our life that just, even if I was really committed to the nine to five lifestyle, just doesn't mesh. And it gives me the flexibility to have the life that I want, where I want and when I want it. And obviously with drawbacks, but I think a lot of people that are at the top of their are looking around and going like, me too. You know what I mean? I want that too. That works for me. And I see that it could work for you. And I think flexibility is for most people probably what drives this. And I think income potential. If you're good at what you do and you can do it a couple of different ways and you can do it across a variety of clients, like you don't need to be an agency to make a really healthy living and to outer what you're earning in-house. 